Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We begin a new series today called Selfless. I want to start by exploring for just a few moments this phenomenon called the selfie. Familiar with it? Um, I started to ask who doesn't, who in the room doesn't know what a selfie is, but you'd be really embarrassed at not knowing what a selfie is because the, the, the odds are good that most of us in the room have taken at least one. Um, I, I, this week, just in preparation, just going out trying to find something fun for us to start this series, I thought I would show some selfies. Now, I want to caution you, parents, that if you go to googleimages.com and you type in bad selfie, you want to do that when your kids are not around, because selfies often get taken in bathrooms, and it is amazing what ends up out on the internet for the whole world to see. Um, there's various stages of dress and undress, and I, you know, I'm not into all that, but, but um, I, I just thought it'd be fun. So, so if you're unfamiliar with what a selfie is, this is what it looks like when someone takes a selfie. This is just a shadow drawing, uh, a silhouette, I think we call that, not a shadow drawing, silhouette of someone taking a selfie. But check some of these out. There's an astronaut selfie, that's kind of cool that you'd be in space. I mean, I would probably want to take a selfie if I was in space, I, if I was not worried about all the vacuum sucking the air out of my spacesuit. I don't know what this guy's doing. I, and, and the cat doesn't really know <laughs> what this guy's doing either. Um, poor cat. The cat's almost as big as he is. Yeah, that's just wrong, isn't it? That just looks, something's not right about that. And he's in a public, he's in a, uh, what looks to be a, a bathhouse. And uh, I guess he just wants to make sure he's got his groove on before he steps outside for all the ladies, and he's bringing his dog along for the show, so. Grandma took a selfie, isn't that sweet? Grandma taking a selfie. This is a... Uh, this is how Redneck gets a six-pack, only this is an eight-pack. He shaved that into his chest. That's really not a selfie, but, I mean, he's obviously posing, so. Prince William took a selfie. And apparently, I don't know, does she have something in her eye? Is she flirting with somebody? I'm not really sure what that's about, but um, I thought I'd show her to you. Woody took a selfie. How about that? Gave himself a mustache. I thought that one was pretty cool. And I don't know what's up with this guy, but I'm pretty sure he's wanted in about five different states. <laughs> that dude just looks creepy to me. I, I don't know about him. Do we have any more? Is that the last one? That's the last one. Okay. I want you to think of somebody in your life right now who is selfless. Somebody who's selfless, that, that just has an obsession with serving other people. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a sibling for you, it might have been a friend along the way, your grandmother, grandfather, a coach might come to your mind. And you watch them week in and week out, and you were in close proximity to them, and they just did not seem to be about themselves at any given time. It just seemed like they were always thinking about other people. And whatever it is to be selfish and self-centered and self-focused, they were the opposite of that. They made their business about helping other people and serving other people. Do you, did you, were you able to think of somebody in your life like that? The second question would be this. Have you ever run into someone who was selfish? 
now's not the time to nudge the person sitting next to you, okay? It's normal to be self-focused. It's normal to be a little self-centered and self-consumed. And it's, it's wonderfully abnormal to be selfless, to be a servant. I want to start this morning by reading two verses for you from Philippians. That's where we're going to camp for the next five weeks in this little passage of Scripture known as Philippians 2. And it says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So we ask the question when we're reading Scripture, who wrote it, who's he writing to, where's he writing from, what are the circumstances surrounding the situation? Well, in this case, it's believed that these words were written about 60 A.D., and they were written to a group of people, Jesus followers, in the northern Greek city of Philippi. This is the letter to the Philippians. Let me take you there, because as we talk about these verses over the next several weeks, I want you to be able to have some context, and I want you to be able to imagine some things. These are real people. They live in a real place. Uh, Philippi is in northern Greece. It's about 10 miles inland. The port city back then was a city called Neapolis. It's now known, the little harbor town there now is a little town called Kavala. What you're seeing there is the open-air market. It's kind of their version of Walmart, and uh, that's right outside of Kavala. That's their, their, you know, their fruit market, and um, that, that looks like they're doing a pretty brisk business. Um, and then there's this road that traveled inland. Uh, it's, it's over 2,000 years old. It's known as the Via Ignatia. It runs from Philippi. It's part of a larger road that's 450 miles from, basically from Istanbul to the edge of Greece. And, and you can see there's an agricultural area, and then down toward the bottom there is this... Um, it's a, that's a, what they call the Agora, the marketplace. We've talked about that before. Um, and then you're going to see here in just a minute a theater. And they built this theater, and then later the Romans came in and they reconfigured that theater, and I'll explain why they did that in later sermons. So the reason I wanted you to see all that, and I'll probably show you videos like that throughout this series just to remind you of what we're talking about. We're talking about a real place. There were real people Christ followers that Paul wrote back to and he wanted to instruct them. So when we're talking about the Philippians, talking about Paul writing to them, it's it's not on the coast, it's about 10 miles inland. So if you visited Philippi, you would first have sailed into this little city called Neapolis, which is what we have today as modern day Kavala. Philippi was founded by Alexander the Great's dad, a guy named Philip of Macedon. He was from a region known as Macedonia. There had been uh, a significant Roman uh, battle fought in this area, and a lot of the farmland in the surrounding areas had been given to former uh, military uh, guys. And so in the States, we have Veterans Day. In Philippi, it was like Veterans Day every day. They highly valued their their veterans. They took really good care of them. They they got property, and a lot of those guys kind of got set up because they they served in the military. Um, just tons and tons of ex-military in Philippi. And so in about 50 AD, the message of Jesus reaches these Philippians. And Paul went through Philippi on his second missionary journey. Now just so you might have some frame of reference, and we're not going to look at it today, but if you wanted to read about Paul's missionary journey to Philippi specifically, 
you could find that in Acts chapter 16. Again, we're not going to look there today, but that's something that you might want to look up on your own. When Paul leaves Philippi, he leaves behind a pocket of Jesus followers, and the book of Philippians is written to that group of Jesus followers about 10 years after he left them. He's writing to encourage, he's writing to instruct, he wants to train them about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And one more thing you should know about the book of Philippians, Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi while he is in prison. He was under house arrest in Rome. And, and it's an interesting thing to know because all through the book of Philippians, Paul's going to write some things that we're very familiar with. I mean, I, I'm going to read these to you. I'm sure you've heard these in sermons or in your own personal reading, things when Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. He wrote that in Philippians. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. That's in the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now you have to understand when you read that, you're reading words that were written by a guy who was in prison. His future was uncertain. He didn't know what was going to happen to him. And see, you need to know that because when you read that, you're tempted to say, yeah, man, that's easy for you to say. You don't know my circumstance. Well, I would tell you, Paul's circumstance is he's in prison and his future is very, very uncertain. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. So just remember that as you read the book of Philippians. Paul, the author, is in a place he does not want to be. But in Philippians 2, there is this whole selfless thing that comes up and it, it, it consumes the entire chapter of Philippians, the second chapter. And it's here that Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This was written to church people. And here's the question this morning. If a church actually did that, what would it look like? What would happen if a congregation of people said, I'm not going to be as deeply devoted to me as I am devoted to the people around me. If a church actually tried to do this, what would it look like? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. What would it look like in Terre Haute? What would it look like at Cross Lane if we started to take major steps toward this idea of being selfless, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. It's easy, isn't it, to, to spot selfish people. It's really pretty easy to spot them. It's not hard, but we get blind as bats in seeing the selfishness in ourselves. Because when it's in us, it doesn't feel like selfishness. It feels very natural for us. And it feels normal. And so one of the challenges in this series is just to ask the question, where am I all about me? And most of the time, people don't know or realize their own selfishness. But when we begin to discover and grow, if we could really start to hone in on where we are selfish, we might truly be able to take some steps of, of real growth. This could change the way you relate to your spouse. This could change the way you relate to the company that you work for, even if it doesn't change your company. Some of you work in wonderful places with wonderful people. Some of you go to work and you, you have great people that surround you and you work as a team and things are great. Others of you work in horrible environments, and I know that. Some of you work with people who are 
for lack of a better word, foul. They're hard to get along with. They, they're kind of nasty in their approach to life. They're foul mouth. They're bad mood. It's, they're picky. They're petty. They're just, you know, awful people. And I'm telling you that the person that dials into this principle of selfless living in response to their walk with God, the person who says, Lord, just give me the grace every day to not be all about me. You may not change the culture of the company. You may not change the people around you. You will change the way you relate to your company. It would be possible for somebody to look back 10 years after having been in that company while you were a part of it and to be able to say, you know, there was just, I hated the company. I didn't like working there. I couldn't wait to get out. But there was this one lady. There was this one dude who just, it's, he seemed to rise above all the pettiness and all the backbiting and all the foulness that was in that company. They're just, he was a blessing to other people. And you may not be able to change the company. You will change the way you interact with people. And you will change the way you relate to that company. This is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing in schools and hospitals. It's a powerful thing in businesses. But what's interesting is this was written to a church. So I ask it again, if this got a hold of us, if this sunk deep, if this really became ministry for enough people and they grew in this area of selfless, if it really took hold, we could look like a completely different church by Christmas if enough people would take hold of this idea of being selfless. Now, I want to say this, I want to make sure you hear me say this. If you were able to travel with me, if I ever go to a conference or something, if I ever talk to another pastor, if I'm ever out away from here, you know, I just was on vacation last week and was, had some people asking me about the church I serve, and I can't wait to talk about you, honestly. I, I love to talk about you, and I tell people all the time, it's the most beautiful church you've ever seen. And I'm not talking about the facade or the building. I'm talking about what goes on in here. You are a beautiful church beautiful church there are people in this church that have this selfless thing nailed i mean cold nailed this is a serving selfless church all you have to do is hang out here for a little bit you see that i'm sure many of you let's just play a game i didn't do this in the first service if you've ever been served selflessly by someone in this church would you please raise your hand get them high get them high look at that this is a serving church there are great people in this church but how might it look different if we were to lock into this idea of being selfless? Today I want to talk, walk us through three phases in the story of selfless. I want to, phase one is going to be parting words. We're going to look at some things that Jesus had to say. Then phase two is going to be the early progress of the early church. And then phase three is going to be the ongoing struggle. Rather than just dialing in on this one church in, in northern Greece, in Philippi, I want us to go back a little further than that. I want us to go 30 years beyond that. I want us to go back to when, uh, what we call the Lord's Supper. It's the night that Jesus gets arrested. And Jerusalem is far from Philippi. And the events that we know as the Lord's Supper, and in those days, you, you would be kind of reclining around a table. Um, I think we get this idea of the Lord's Supper. They were sitting upright like we do at our meals. They didn't really do that. They reclined. The table wasn't very tall. And much in the same way you might recline and eat popcorn when you're watching a movie on the floor, you know, they, they kind of ate like that. And so 
you would recline around this table. But in this culture, when you walked into a home, the first thing that happened were your shoes came off. Now, that happens for some in this culture. I mean, when I walk into a home, I'm usually looking around to see if I'm supposed to take my shoes off because some of you, um, just you, that's your custom in your house. Nobody wears shoes in the house. You take them off at the door and you walk sock-footed or barefoot through the house. When you walked into a home in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, you would take off your shoes at the door. Now, the reason for that is because the streets were very narrow, and they did not have just pedestrians on the street. They also had animals on the street, animals that are not nearly as discretionary about what they leave behind and where they leave it. So when you walked into a house, your feet were caked with this mingling of mud and dust and sheep crap for you know, I'm, I mean, I'm being good right there, really. But when you get to the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper in John 13, it says that Jesus is sitting, and he's got all these guys sitting around. They've all taken their feet off, but the problem is nobody's had their feet washed, which was customary in the day. Everybody, there was a servant at the door to wash feet so that it didn't stink. And so we find out in John 13 that at there's a point in the meal where Jesus gets up from the table, he takes off his robe, he wraps this very large towel around his waist, and he pours water into a basin, and he begins to make his way around the table to wash the feet of these disciples, these dirty, foul-smelling, dung-caked feet of these guys who've now been traveling with him for three years. Andrew, Phillips, James, John, Peter, Nathaniel, Judas, and I know I do this every time we talk about Jesus washing feet, but I can't help it. I can't help it. I have to do this. I have to point out that Jesus washed the feet of the man who would betray him. You know, it's things like this that make Christianity the hardest thing that I have ever tried to do in my life. Um, I say this a lot. I'm going to say it again because it needs to be said. It's really easy to look spiritual. It's not hard to look spiritual. You go to church, put on some nice clothes, you come in, you pray, and you bow your head, and you fold your hands. And you, go, you can look spiritual by going out after we get done here and go to a restaurant, and your family can pray around the table, and that looks really spiritual, and it may even be spiritual. You can say the right words, you can act the religious bit, you can you know, keep all the law if you want, you can do all that, you can look really spiritual. You want to be spiritual? Here's how you be spiritual. You wash the feet of people who betray you. That's how you're spiritual. It's difficult. It's very, very difficult. Jesus and what he called us to do is extremely hard. And then it says that Jesus came back and he sat down, and I don't know, but there just had to have been a huge silence in the room after Jesus has done this thing. And he starts to teach, and he says, look, you call me master, right? You call me master and Lord, and you're right, that's what I am. Servants are not above their master. You call me master as I have washed your feet, so you should wash one another's feet. And he's going to leave, and by 9 o'clock the next morning, he will be hanging on a cross. And these are the parting words that he has for his disciples. And what Jesus desires, I think, to leave behind is a group of foot washers. The term selfish Christian is a contradiction. 
And at this last meal together, there's this display of humility where he looks after him and he's not really looking after himself. He's trying to take care of his disciples. This was not the first time he'd said something like this. In, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he's walking along with his disciples. His disciples are being boneheaded like they normally are. They're talking about infrastructure. They're talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom and who gets what position of authority. And then Jesus breaks this out on them. I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. That's what Jesus said. I came to give up my life. I didn't come to be served. It's not about me. I came and I'm here to give my life up, to lay it down. That's why I'm here. I think it was Jesus' intent to leave behind a community of foot washers, a community of servants. Now, there's a lot about church that is a lot about you. I think it's absolutely normal for you to wake up on any given Sunday morning and to think to yourself, you know, I'm going to go to church today, and, and I think it would be normal for you to have these kind of thoughts. I hope the sermon interests me this morning. I hope the music is inspirational, and I hope the music's really good this morning. Um, I hope that the programming that they have is going to be good for me. I'm pretty sure we all think that kind of stuff. When I'm going to a church and I'm not the preacher, I'm kind of having those same thoughts. Man, I hope the sermon's good this morning. I hope the guy's funny. I hope he holds my attention. I hope the music's good. It's kind of a form of consumerism that we participate in, but we are consumers. We're very good at it. We get lots of practice through the week, and I think we do that even on Sundays. But the truth is, our tanks get low. And we do need help. We do need inspiration. We do need somebody. You, when you come in here on Sunday morning, it's kind of understood by those of us who are up here. You're kind of counting on us to give you something. And, and I understand that. But in addition to that, I hope as you come in, one of the questions you're asking is, whose feet should I be washing? There's a part of this where we should say, fundamentally, I'm not here for me. Fundamentally, I'm here to wash the feet of someone else. Fundamentally, I'm here to be selfless and to give myself away. And, and after Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, he drops this on them. A new command I give you. It's not a request. Love one another. Well, Jesus, how are we supposed to do that? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. He has just washed their feet he is going to be executed the very next day. So when he says, as I have loved you, we're talking about a pretty extreme love. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. People will be able to tell that, you're a gr that your group is a Jesus group, that your group is committed to Jesus as you love one another. Jesus is saying here that one of the most defining, distinguishing marks of any Jesus community would be selfless living toward the people in that community. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. People on the outside will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Why? How, how would they know? Because then you look like him. Then you act like him. Then you're thinking like him. So here's a question. Whose feet are you washing? You might say, Brett, I'm just visiting today, man. I don't, I'm not connected here. I'm not, I didn't come to wash anybody's feet. 
you're kind of wigging me out, but okay. But once you've decided to settle into a Jesus community, once you've figured out what church, you might be just checking us out today, shopping, and that's fine. But at some point, you're going to decide to cast your lot with a certain group of very flawed individuals who call themselves Christians, and you're going to make that your church home. And when you do, I'm going to ask you the question again, whose feet are you washing? Because you're going to devote your life, hopefully you're going to devote your life to loving those people that you're in community with. I'm coming in now to the, my favorite part of this whole sermon. Um, I love the way, there's something our church does that, we do a lot of things around here, I see servanthood demonstrated, I see selflessness demonstrated in this church all the time, okay? When you're behind the scenes like I am, you see things, there are so many days I've left this place just shaking my head at how good people are in this church and how willing they are to serve other people, but I want to tell you about one group of people. I, I do funerals, a lot of funerals throughout the year, I don't, I mean anywhere from probably 10 to 20, sometimes more. I would say that between 70 and 80% of the funerals I do after that funeral, our church offers a dinner to the family so that they can come with their family after it's all been said and done. And we're, we're not going to take their grief away. We know that. We, we know that we're, we're not making a dent at all in their grief, but we're just trying to serve that family and help them and let them know they're loved and cared for. And so we, not just our, our, our members, but, but just people in general. If we feel like we can help, we try to help. And I don't really know how to say this well, so please bear with me, but when I do a funeral, I'm kind of out there, okay? I'm up front, and I get seen, and, and people notice that. And, and when I'll have people come up and say, you know, your words were comforting to me, or it was inspirational, or, you know, they'll just, they'll compliment me. And that's, it's always nice when people do that. I'm not going to lie, that's nice, but... When the funeral is over, I cannot wait to get back to the building and to get back into our little kitchen in the back where there is an army of people, men and women, who have come together for the sole purpose of serving this family that has lost a loved one. And they have given up their mourning many times, and they sacrifice. They've given up, you know, things that they had planned for the day Um, Because we called on short notice and said, hey, can you help us prepare this dinner? And they come, and they line up, and they serve, and they fix this food. And, you know, I think they think that I'm there just to eat, and I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of hungry. But I really just want to be with them. I really just want to stand there, and I, I get such a blessing out of watching them wash the feet of people many times that they don't even know. And they're so gracious and they're so loving and their their spirits are so full. They're full of joy. They're smiling. They're happy to serve. I don't hear people grumbling and complaining. I don't want to be here. I had plans. No, they're, they're joyful as they serve. I love those people who serve those dinners. And I, I, every time I try to go in and hug them and touch them and tell them that I'm just, I'm thankful for them. I'm so thankful for them. There's, there's selflessness all around our building. Right now, we've got people in a prayer room praying for you. You don't even know they're back there. They're praying for you. We've got people in our nursery watching your kids so that you can come in here and have a few minutes peace and be able to taught, be, be taught something about Jesus. They're washing your feet. They're trying to serve you. 
We have selflessness all over this building. But I'll ask it again. Whose feet are you washing? And Jesus gives us these parting words in John 13. It doesn't feel optional. What if Jesus really desired to leave behind a community of foot washers? And what if a church, instead of becoming so focused on being a consumer, would would not greatly distort the message of Jesus, but would hone in on it and say, I'm going to serve, I'm going to wash feet. Whose feet are you washing? This is phase one. This is the the, the parting words. And then the next day, he's gone. The Bible says he was resurrected. That his disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, saw the resurrected Jesus, and then Jesus leaves, the Holy Spirit comes, and the Jesus community begins. How will they do this foot washing thing? How will they do with the idea of serving other people? Well, in the early days, they did pretty well. I want to talk about phase two for just a minute, early progress. In Acts chapter four, we're still in Jerusalem, and this is just months after Jesus has resurrected, just months after he's washed the disciples' feet, we read this. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, now get this, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Does this amaze anyone other than me? I'm blown away by that. I have a house, an extra house. I'm going to sell it and give the money to the apostles so that they can meet the needs of the other people. This is what was going on in the early church. They would sell a house, they would sell property, they would take that money, they would bring it and lay it at the feet of the apostles, the very feet that had been washed by Jesus. It appears that the concept of, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, has taken hold among the Jesus followers, and it was something they taught and taught and taught and taught. They brought the money, they set it at the apostles' feet, and they used it as anyone had need. Now, in that day, you find this out if you read Acts 4 and 5 and 6, there was an emphasis on caring, caring for widows. There was an emphasis on caring for orphans. I, I'm going to, just in the in, uh, interest of time, I'm going to skip over this a little bit, but you need to know that, that it was very important to the early church to take care of wi- widows and orphans. I'm really glad Tracy talked about what he did this morning. The early church did a really good job of that. The, the church today does pretty fairly good, but we could do better. In the Jesus community, if you were an orphan, you could be expected to be taken in by the church, by someone in the church who was going to make sure that you did not go around hungry, you did not go around ragged, you had a place to be called to call your home. Really what it comes down to is being able to look at someone and say, I love you more than I love me. That's what it comes down to. Again, I'll say it again. Looking spiritual is easy. Being spiritual is hard. Being spiritual is looking at someone else and saying, I'm going to love you more than I love me. And let's just be honest. We love us, don't we? I love me. Don't you love you? Yeah, we do. That's why we get selfish. But when you're selfless, when you're a servant, when you're going to wash feet, you look at people and you say, I love you more than I love 
me. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, In humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. There are just certain times in life where you look at somebody and you say, Okay, today I'm going to love you more than I love me. It's the servanthood statement. And it's what it means to be a foot washer. And again, I just want to say, this church is full of them. It's full of them. I love you more than you love me. I love you more than you more. I, I love you more than I love me. The passage can change your life. It can change your family. It can change a broken experience that you've had. If it sinks in and gets traction deep enough, when people realize that it doesn't always have to be about me, things can change. This doesn't guarantee that people are going to change. It doesn't guarantee that your company's going to change. But I can guarantee you that if you begin to practice Philippians 2, it will absolutely change you. I can't guarantee it's going to change the company you work for or the people that work there. I can't guarantee that it's going to change your school or it's going to change your, your spouse. I will guarantee that it will change you if you let this take hold and you become more and more like Christ as you wash feet. See, when I'm thinking about me, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm, I think I behave in different ways than when I'm being selfless. See, when you're, when, you're, when you're thinking about other people, you're moving more toward what it looks like to be like Jesus. Phase one, parting words. Phase two was initial or early progress. Phase three is the ongoing struggle. I want to do this quickly. We're still in Jerusalem. Uh, we're with people who spent three years with Jesus. Now the question moving forward is, how, how are they going to do this after the disciples are gone? How are they going to do this when the church is getting bigger and there aren't the originals there to kind of make it all go smoothly? How is it gonna, what's it going to look like? When the Jesus movement starts showing up in places like Corinth, when it starts showing up in Ephesus, when it starts showing up in Philippi, and, and the church is getting bigger and bigger, and, and there's just a few people that really know what to do and how to lead it. So phase three is going to be the ongoing struggle, the pursuit of the selfless life. What does it look like? I want to take you to Ephesus. Hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, Paul goes there. He will write back to the Ephesian church that he starts, and this is what he writes to them. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. The word to the church there, be kind. Does it surprise you that the church had to be told to be kind? Be kind and compassionate to one another. And by the way, when someone hurts you, don't hurt them back. But you be gracious to someone because God has been gracious to you. You love other people because God has loved you. You give mercy to other people because God has been merciful to you. Treat others the way the Lord has treated you. And don't forget that he died for you. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. That he has to say this to the Ephesians tells us that they had some ongoing struggles. Now let's go across the Aegean Sea to the city of Corinth. This is in Lower Greece, and here you have the wedding verses, right? These, you go to a wedding, you hear these. I've been to a wedding and heard the, the love chapter. Verse, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. You hear these words over and over at weddings, that's how people behave when they're in love, right? These are not the behaviors that people need when they're most decidedly not 
These are the behaviors that people need when they are most decidedly not acting in love. And Paul writes to a congregation at Corinth and he says, okay, let me break it down for you. This is what patience looks like. This is what kindness looks like. Obviously, you've forgotten. Sounds like an ongoing struggle, doesn't it? Let's go to Philippi. Philippi is the, is the, the northern part of Greece. Listen to what they get. Philippians chapter 2. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. In Philippians 4, there's this good old-fashioned feud going on. they got a church feud. It's between these two women. Listen to this. I plead with Yodia and plead with Syntyche. These are two women in the church, and they can't get along. To be of the same mind in the Lord. These people love Jesus. These two women, they love Jesus, and they love Paul, but they don't like each other. And, And so... Paul's going to have to write verses and ask people in the church to step in and mediate for them what's going on. Let's get this thing figured out. What's going on in Philippi? Have they forgotten the mandate of Jesus to wash feet? That's why Paul's going to say in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others selfless so brett what they get they're that jacked up and they get two verses on being selfless no they get a whole chapter on selfless and it's what we're going to look at for the next five consecutive weeks but i want to do this this morning as we go out i just want you to i want clear your mind i just want you to try to lock in i want you to hear paul trying to instill this characteristic of selflessness in the church at philippi And this is how we're going to end this morning, okay? Listen carefully. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, he starts all this with if, if any tenderness and and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Selfless. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross therefore God exalted him to the highest place that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father selfless Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast one day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Selfless. And Paul is in prison. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him 
who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And then he's going to wrap this up. And I want you to listen to the tenderness and the selflessness, both in Paul and in the person he writes about. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and he almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give. Selfless. What does it look like for us to walk out of here this morning a little less selfish and a little more selfless? Whose feet are we going to wash this week? Let's pray together. God, we stand in this room together, a group of people who are very flawed. There is so much we get wrong and we are so jacked up. God, that's not a secret. And probably one of the biggest problems we have is that we all tend to be selfish. It's, it's natural. It's a part of the old man in us. Lord, would you cast a new vision for us this morning? we might leave this place and go out and find someone whose feet need to be washed and that we would become more selfless. Father, over the next five weeks, would you do a work in us so that when we get to Christmas, we would be a church that looks different. You've done such beautiful things through the people in this church and and it's such a magnificent, wonderful place, but God, we want to mature, we want to grow, we want to be better. So we beg with you, we plead with you, help us to become more selfless. It's in Jesus' name we pray.